evening and welcome to the very first Transatlantic History Ramblings with Lauren and Brian of October, my favorite month. This is Brian in Buffalo, New York, US of A, and with me as always is Lauren from Swansea. How are you? I am giddy. I love October. It is horror movie month. I watch at least one horror movie a day throughout the month of October, which of course makes it like every other month of the year for me. Yes, and if you're looking for something spooky that is not a horror movie, but is equally creepy and kind of a real life horror movie, I do suggest that you get onto Discovery Plus and look at the new Robert the Doll documentary because that is very good. I love Robert the Doll. And Robert, I'm just asking right now, is it okay if we talk about you? I am asking permission. But uh, I've written Robert a letter in, in, in Florida. I hope he's safe from the hurricane. I hope Ian sure didn't fuck Robert is. too much. I'm sure that he is. I mean, you know, the stories that um, I hear, you know, that we heard about him is that he can get out of his glass and walk around and stuff like that. So I hope he's keeping himself safe. You know, Lauren, I was thinking a lot about it being October. Yes. Do you know why it's so cheap to throw a party at a haunted house? Um, because nobody wants to go in there? No, because the ghosts bring all the booze. <laughs> <laughs> Is that another one of the jokes that came through the emails? No, I'm. that's one of mine. But we would talk about emails. You said you had an email. You want, you want to talk about emails? Okay, we'll talk about emails. Well, first yeah. off, I am still catching a lot of shit about the Ewoks. Good, good. You're very rude about them. Well, I've been catching so much shit. People are really mad about my Ewok take. And I don't know if they're more mad about me telling the Ewoks ate people, but they really didn't like that I implied that the Ewoks had sex with Princess Leia. Yeah, I think that you went too far there. Hey, did she not come out of the hut in a new dress? Yeah, but that doesn't mean anything, Brian. Means she was naked in there. Oh, be quiet. They didn't eat her, did they? Nope. What did she do to them to prevent them from eating her? I don't I know. know. I, sh- I should stop now because I'm going to get more hate mail. Yeah, you are. So, yes. But yeah, people do not like my Ewok take. I'm sorry, people. Go watch the movie again. They're fucking eating stormtroopers. That means Lando and uh, was it Biggs that was there or was it uh, Wedge? Wedge. Um, they were all eating stormtroopers, too. Maybe. We don't know that. But I am still getting emails, Lauren, all about Chris Sheldon's appearance on this show. Are you? People are just loving it. I'm getting a lot of emails from people saying that they have loved ones involved in cults or cult-like beliefs now. And having him on the show to discuss this has helped them so much. Uh, especially the advice he gave at the end about how to talk to someone, keep the communication lines open, just keep talking to them, don't cut off contact, don't talk about the cult, just talk about the weather or sports or anything normal, just to keep the contact going, to keep that human element to, you know, help. It's just been, it's been great. It helped a lot of listeners, and uh, we're definitely going to have to have him back on. I hope so. And 
here's another email we got that said Lauren is right. Brian's jokes are terrible. Yay! Signed <laughs> Emily. So all it says, not love the show, not great episode, just Dear Trades Atlantic History Ramblings, Lauren is right. So to that I say, how about some more jokes? That's that's a that's a familiar name. Is that little girl whose dad listens to the show? Nothing, nothing from her. Right. Nothing. But uh, you know what I found out the other day, Lauren? What? You know, I went to the doctor and I found out I'm colorblind. How did you find that out? Uh, he did some tests and he told me, and I'll tell you, that fucking news came right out of the purple. I knew that was going to happen. Yeah. I set myself up for that. <sighs> okay, Lauren, I got one more joke for you. Okay. What's the difference between a well-dressed man on a unicycle and a poorly-dressed man on a bicycle? Attire. <laughs> so, um, you haven't told us how you're enjoying um, Dr. Darnell's new book. I am loving Dr. Darnell's new book. It is incredible. Uh, well, you know, I love Egyptology to begin with, and I was so thrilled to get the advanced reader copy. You know... It's funny, Lauren, when I when I heard advanced reader copy, I thought they were saying, I'm smart, I'm advanced, and then I realized it just meant they sent me out a copy before it was published. Yeah. Not so advanced. Uh-huh. But I, I, I got an email from Dr. Darnell recently, and uh, she's going to come back on once the book comes out. Lovely. That's October. It is. No, November. November. No, we're, we're in October now. The book comes out in November. But you know, tonight's show. We're going to be talking about another book that I got an advanced reader copy of, and so did you, Lauren. I did. Hooray! That, uh, <laughs> this is the first time we both got a copy. <laughs> this one is a um, wonderful book uh, put out by my publisher, ECW Press. Big shout out to ECW Press, best publisher in North America. Thank you. The other great thing is this is by another Brian, uh, Brian Martin who is a great author. I've read several of his books before. Before he even signed with my publisher, I'd been a fan of his because he's written a lot of books about baseball history. But this book he wrote that's coming out, uh, comes out at the end of this month, called From Underground Railroad to Rebel Refuge, uh, Canada and the Civil War. Unbelievable book that tells us uh, certain parts of history that we're not taught in history class about what became of the of the Underground Railroad after the Civil War. And spoiler alert, folks, it wasn't the best of uh, events. But how have you been enjoying that book? Very much so. It's been very interesting because I never thought about the Underground Railroad in Canada. Yeah, it's mind-blowing. You weren't expecting the first half of the book, you kind of knew, but the second half of the book, woo, wow. I yeah. uh, can't wait to have He's going to be on a little bit later to talk about that. Uh, do you think he'll like my jokes? If he likes baseball, then he'll like <laughs> your baseball jokes. Maybe I'll come up with some from some railroad jokes. Um, no, please don't. It's too serious to joke about. It is too serious to joke about. Sort of like when uh, my neighbor wanted to take me into his shed to sew me some of the stuff he had, and he goes, uh, see that over there? That's my stepladder. I never knew my real ladder. 
<laughs> Come on, Lauren, that's funny. It's not. No. I have I have a friend on my side in Emily who says your jokes are rubbish. So I feel good. Yeah, well, you know what, Emily? You might be right. And we love you for listening, Emily, even though you agree with Lauren. But it's the accent. Every did I tell you I was doing a book signing recently, uh, more self-shameless self-promotion, but I was with my co-author, Danny Murphy, and we were doing a book signing recently, and there was some downtime before it started when we got to the place, and we're sitting there talking, and he goes, hey, I was uh, was listening to one of your old episodes the other day about Rasputin. That was an early episode that we did about Rasputin. But he goes, yeah, I was re-listening to that episode about Rasputin, and, uh, man, I'll tell you something, Brian. I could listen to Lauren talk all day. <laughs> what the fuck was that? <laughs> so, yeah, you suck, Brian. <laughs> Basically, that's what he said. Thanks, Dan. No, I was listening to your episode the other day about Rasputin, man. It was great, and I'll tell you something. I could listen to Lauren all day. I, uh... uh this is why he silences my uh, <laughs> my microphone. <laughs> yeah, well, Lauren, that's that's the kind of that's the feedback I get. Hey, Brian, I listen to your show all the time. Thanks, man. That's great. What do you think about it? Oh, Lauren's wonderful. That's basically what I get. <laughs> Even worse if it was somebody that was coming to have a book signed by you and said that. Yeah, well, you would find that funny. Fucking Welshy sense of humor. Yeah, that would be funny if somebody did that. Because, oh, yeah. Yeah, I love your show, Brian. Lauren's amazing. Yeah, I always tell him that's because she's from Wales. Same reason I could listen to Tom Jones all day. Did Has somebody said that to you while you're signing their book? No. No, yeah. I have had people say they love the show, but usually they don't insult me to my face as I'm signing an autograph. <laughs> it's only a matter of time, though, because I do have a couple more signings coming up, but... Oh, that's brilliant, because a lot of your signings have to be pushed back because of COVID. And I'm so yeah, glad. that's what it was. Yeah, but, yeah, so Danny Danny loves Lauren. Some people like the jokes. We do get some feedback about how much they like the jokes, but not many. So any other emails? We've been getting a lot of emails, not a lot of emails, but a certain amount of emails uh, asking if we're going to do more horror stuff for October, and yes, we do plan on it. Yes, we were just talking about a possible idea but it's um it's not complicated but there are lots of steps yep, and, and there's can... two two actual ideas coming up yeah uh we might do another thing about horror movies mm-hmm. we, we may do um some horror theme related stuff um, also we were talking about um a show on a specific haunted object, but again, that would—that's very much an idea that we're just thinking about at the moment. And another tease I'll give is that we may be doing a show about a certain very famous horror movie icon. Yes. With a descendant of said icon who contacted who, us. Who also has a haunted object connected to them. That's true. Yes. Yeah, we will be doing some great Halloween stuff. Um, yeah, we've also thought about doing a traditional, um, one of our traditional paranormal type ones, you know, where we have the panel discussion. 
and we were thinking about mixing it up slightly this year. Yeah, because so we, we have lots of paranormal people who want to come on. What What's the deal with that, Lauren? All these paranormal yeah. people say, i, I got to go on this show with Brian the Skeptic. No, yeah, you know that. what it is. They love Lauren. I, I don't. I didn't know we had lots of people, paranormal people, wanting to come on. Oh yeah, and then the ones that have been on want to come back. Kurt always wants to come back, and we love Kurt. Yeah, I was thinking that it would be good this year if we did a, if we did a panel with Kurt, you and I, and had Ash back. So we had two skeptics. Ooh, that would be great. Believers. Yeah, and you'd have two Americans. First two of you furners. Ah, but you see, if we were very lucky and we could get Ash and his wife on in the same uh, chat, we have three Americans. Yes. Oh, you know what, Lauren? You know what I was just thinking about because it's October. Have you ever seen a pregnant witch? No. I don't think witches can get pregnant. Do you know why? Why? Because warlocks have a Halloweeny. <laughs> All right. I'm sorry. On that note, you want to go to our um, today in history? Yeah. You do? Okay. Well, my day in history. Today in history, October the third. 1863, 16th President of the United States of America, Abraham Lincoln, designates the last Thursday in November shall be Thanksgiving Day. Feed your faces, motherfuckers. Because that's what Thanksgiving is in America. No one really thanks anybody for, like, the pilgrims and shit. And watch football. He didn't say that. He didn't say motherfuckers. I think he said dingleberries. What do you think, Sarah? Did Lincoln call us motherfuckers or dingleberries? Lincoln, do you think he called the people dingleberries or motherfuckers? Motherfuckers, Sarah says. So I guess we'll go with Sarah. And that's why he got shot. And that's why he got shot. That's right. Um, Speaking of Lincoln, before we go on to your day in history, our buddy Ed Acorn, who wrote the... um, Amazing book, Lord. Remember, Every Drop of Blood, all about the uh, second Lincoln inauguration. And he came on our show to discuss it. He's got a new Lincoln book coming out, and uh, he's going to be coming on to discuss that. Maybe we'll try to get him on for a Thanksgiving show, since Lincoln's the one who said, y'all should eat some turkey, motherfucker. Yeah, I'm sure he said it like that, too. But what I'm also um, thinking about is it would be very interesting if we could sort of designate the first five minutes or so of that episode to discuss with him what he thinks about the Lincoln death photograph. We can do that. Yeah. And then we'll get him to confirm that Lincoln said, y'all eat some turkey, motherfucker. Yeah, I'm sure he didn't say that. Mashed potatoes. Uh, um, Yeah, I'm pretty sure he didn't expect um, Thanksgiving to become what it is. I mean, people... People have to work on Thanksgiving. Not in here. Not in America. I thought they did. No, not only that. In America, I get Thanksgiving in the day after Thanksgiving off. They call that the, hey, fat ass, you're too full to come into work day, I think. Oh, it's like Boxing Day. It's like Christmas Day and Boxing Day here. 
In America, it's called Black Friday. That's where people have to go in at stupid o'clock and do everything. Yeah, it's really, basically, it's a holiday because all the stores put, like, crazy sales on for one day for Christmas shopping. But yeah. in reality, it's, um, in America, the tradition starts on Wednesday. Because I don't know if you know this. This is true, Lauren. This is not me trying to be funny. In America, the number one drinking day of the year is the night before Thanksgiving. Well, the Friday before Christmas in the UK is called Black Friday because everybody goes out to get drunk. Yeah. In America, everyone thinks New Year's is the big drinking day in America. It's not. The number one day for bars in drinking in the U.S. is the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. I think it's because we all have to get drunk because we know we're going to be in a room with our relatives the next day, which is never a good thing. And also some people don't have any family to go to, and that could be the reason why they're drinking. Well, we've solved that problem in my family is that we don't celebrate Thanksgiving on Thanksgiving. And when we do, it's just my brothers and my mother and my niece. But we uh, we all stay home on Thanksgiving, watch football, and ignore everybody. And then over that weekend, we'll get together and have dinner. But uh, in America, yeah, the drinking is Wednesday night. Then Thursday is Thanksgiving celebration with the family and football. And then Friday is the shopping day. So it's a three-day holiday, thanks to Abe Lincoln, who said, all y'all motherfuckers go eat some turkey. No, he didn't say that. I, Lauren, I'm an American and I'm a historian. I think I know that Lincoln said, all y'all motherfuckers go eat turkey. You're in Wales. You don't know. Wow. I you, just know you that. You think he said go eat mutton or something. No. All right. Before I get in trouble for putting motherfuckers in Lincoln's mouth, give me your day in history. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah. I'm going to get in so many emails, Brian. So many emails. So my day in history is the 3rd of October, 1849. And that is the last day Edgar Allan Poe was seen in public. So the Baltimore, Maryland-based American poet and author best known for his poem, The Raven, was found or... If you're me and um, my dad, um, uh, El Dorado was my dad's favorite poem, and I read that at his funeral. Which was beautiful, by the way. um, Thank you. Was found sick and delirious on the streets and taken to Windsor College Hospital, where he died a few days later. He was 40 years old at the time of his death. And, you know, you're really softening it up. By saying he was found sick and delirious on the street. No, where was he found, Lauren? He was in the gutter. Yeah, he was. Literally in the gutter. When they tell people you're in the gutter, that's an expression that comes from them finding Edgar Allan Poe literally in the gutter. In the gutter. He wasn't even wearing his own clothes. Um, They have no idea what happened. I think the dominant theory that I heard was that he was... Uh, it was something to do with voters, and they were press ganging him to vote uh, a certain way, and they got him drunk or um, or hopped up on something. Yeah, I don't think he was. I mean, he was an alcoholic, but I think he was he was drugged on something. Yeah, but he was. I think. I think. If I remember correctly, he was wearing somebody else's clothes. He wasn't. Wearing he was. Clothes. Yeah. Sort of like Princess Leia. 
maybe he'd be with the Ewoks and so some things. And Lauren, then, are you yeah. saying the Ewoks drugged Edgar Helen Poe? Yes. <laughs> That's my theory. How come they didn't need him? Well, I mean... Because no, it's, I mean, it's, it, 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 we shouldn't even make light of that because what happened to Poe was 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 really tragic. Uh, yes. you know, like you said, he was only forty years old. I mean, we don't even know why he was why you know why he'd ended up there. I mean, he was very ill as well. He wasn't just um, drunk and high. He was ill. Yeah. Well, so but nobody and nobody can. Um, nobody can account for his whereabouts in the days leading up to the events. Nobody can say what happened. Nobody knows. He didn't, he either didn't or couldn't tell anybody what was going on. It was a mess. It was a horrible, horrible mess. And think about this. Look at all he accomplished. And he was only 40 years old when this happened. All that he had accomplished, all that he had written, all those amazing stories and poems and, his work in journalism and his military service, all that by the age of 40. It's, it's incredible the legacy he left. Yeah. And, and I'm glad. Usually when someone dies in such a weird, horrific way, that's what they're remembered for. But yet Poe was so brilliant and such a genius that, you know, a lot of people don't even realize that that's how he died. With a lot of lesser writers, that's what they'd be remembered for. Oh, yeah, he was the guy that was found in someone else's clothes in the gutter, right? With Poe, they don't even know that because his body of work speaks so much for himself. I mean, not just like you said, El Dorado, which is beautiful, or The Raven, which is probably his most famous work. But, you know, a lot of people think he invented the, 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 the entire detective mystery genre. With uh, Murderers in the Rue Morgue, I don't agree with that, but he popularized it at least. Uh, some of his other stories, you know, The Cask of Amontillado, uh, The Telltale Heart. I mean, these are just some of the most classic stories, not only in horror, but in literature alone. I mean, just The Mask of the Red Death. It, it just goes on and on and on. The Black Cat. I'm a big Edgar Allan Poe fan, as if you couldn't tell, Lauren. No, I can tell. And I know you are. You were raised one. Your father was such a big Poe fan. Yes, he was. Amazing stuff. Uh, we should do another. We did an episode. We did one episode about Edgar Allan Poe that focused primarily on his mysterious death. Remember that? That was great. Uh, that was way was back, way back early in our shows. Uh, with one of our dear friends, with Janice Wilson, if you remember. She came on, because she's from Baltimore, a great mystery writer, former lawyer, prosecutor, uh, legendary figure. She's uh, in, in all those um, television true crime shows, and yet she takes the time out to hang out with us. Uh, she came yes. on, she talked about the, the demise of Edgar Allan Poe, but I think we should do another Poe episode coming up about his life and work. What do yeah, you think? I think that would be a very good idea. Or even an episode about all the adaptations of his work. You know, there's been so many films and radio dramas and plays and stuff based on his work. That'd be a fun show, too. I uh, yeah, I love it. But uh, 
Oh, my God, Lauren. What do you say that uh, I'm, I'm so excited to get to talk to, to Brian, the other Brian, Brian Martin, about this book that uh, I could dial him up now. And uh, you think I should fire up the magic interview box? You should. All right. Let me fire it up. It's the magic interview box. All right. When we come back, we're going to have Brian Martin and we're going to talk about From Underground Railroad to Rebel Refuge. So, Lauren, why don't you go ahead and flip the switch? All right, Lauren, I am so excited because we have Brian Martin on the line. And I am a fan because, hey, he wrote books about baseball. And you know me and my obsession with baseball. (laughs) But he also just wrote this amazing new book from underground railroad to rebel refuge brian i can't thank you enough for joining us it is so good to finally talk to you well it's glad i'm glad to be here brian and uh, one brian to another oh lauren she doesn't get to be one of the brians <laughs> that's too bad poor dear <laughs> now i gotta i gotta ask you uh as my 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 delightful neighbor to the north because i'm in buffalo new york his book really goes through where we live you know both of us yes i I think i got the book yeah and i couldn't put it down i it was two sittings i read the whole thing it would have been one but i had stuff to do that night and i had to put it down what drew you to this topic i mean like i said you know i've known you as a baseball writer for so long and i admired you as such but i know as historians we have multiple interests but what drew you specifically to the to the Civil War and Canada's involvement in the Underground Railroad? Well, I, I have to be honest, it was a, a fellow in London who's a, another historian. He's an undertaker, uh, and, and he happened to mention to me about these uh, uh, headstones from these Confederates that were located in a very large cemetery we have here in London that I would not necessarily have seen Uh, He drew my attention to them and we paid a visit and I was quite intrigued by the fact that these headstones were located in what's called Millionaire's Row, uh, a a, a series of headstones of all the prominent city fathers and mothers of London, Ontario. Uh, The Labatt Brewing Company, for instance, is founded in London, so the big Labatt family headstone and uh, tract of land that they have as well as other prominent families that wouldn't be as well known out of London but uh, the headstones of these people all said they were born in South Carolina and that they all died in London Ontario well um, I lived in London for 50 years and I was unaware of any sort of ongoing connection between London Ontario and Charleston South Carolina a thousand miles away as the crow flies and back then the roads would have been bad, so it would have been railway connections, and it would have come through Buffalo, no doubt. Uh, but uh, I couldn't figure out why these people were there. And this uh, a fellow historian of mine started telling me a little bit about it, and I said, oh, my goodness, that's interesting. And I'm just a curious kind of fellow. I was a journalist for 41 years. I like to ask questions, and I like to find answers. And when I found, whenever I find answers that I find intriguing, I like to share them with people. So uh, my journalism training resulted in me uh, asking questions, getting answers, and then writing a book. Yeah, and the, the questions, oh, my God. What we're taught in America, at least, about the Underground Railroad is 
you know, the positive aspects, how it helped free slaves and how it helped people escape the South. And that's where it's left. And you explored something that really is not talked about much in history, of how this wonderful system became abused and was used by the people that was meant to harm at first and took over it after the war. Did that just... Were you expecting to find that when you open when you started opening these closet doors? Well, no. the 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 the, the role of Canada uh, or um, uh, Canada West, as as it was called, Ontario was called back then, is fairly well known in terms of providing a refuge, a safe refuge for uh, a former uh, enslaved persons and 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 free black persons as well. Uh, we had a number of uh, settlements that were set up specifically for them, and then the, a number of cities in Ontario accepted uh, large numbers. There were something like 20,000 Americans. Uh, many, of, many of them were black Americans that came to Canada. That's reasonably well known. Some of the details, not so much, and the controversies about... They they themselves argued about whether they should be living in existing communities and integrate into Canadian society or if they should live in their own separate communities and uh, live amongst their own and and, you know, build a future uh, collectively. Uh, So but that was reasonably well known. It was the amount of spying and buying and the number of draft dodgers they they used to be called skedaddlers back then uh i mean uh, vietnam years uh, we had lots of draft dodgers but back in the civil war there were there were a lot of draft dodgers as well we had spies we had plotters i discovered that there was a the confederacy had six hundred thousand dollars to pay for dirty tricks clandestine efforts uh based in toronto and montreal to distract the north and to try to ease the pressure on this, the troops, the, the, the troops of the Confederacy that were losing so badly in the South. Uh, so that was a very interesting discovery on my part. And it said that the, uh, the plot to assassinate Abraham Lincoln had its origins in Montreal. John Wilkes Booth was up here and uh, he found some people that uh, didn't like uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln as well. And the plot started here. There was a bioterrorism effort that was uh, launched. There was a a plan to uh, break into Johnson's Island prison in Lake Erie off Sandusky, Ohio, and free all the Confederate generals and prisoners that were held there and lead an armed uprising into the the northwest area, which is today Indiana, Illinois and, and farther west. So there was all sorts of stuff during the war. And then after the war, the people who were displaced that used to own slaves, that used to own plantations, uh, who were racists, uh, some Ku Klux Klan people, uh, decided that, uh, you know, Canada's handy. Other people have escaped up there to get away from the turmoil here. So we're going to go. Uh, Jefferson Davis, he spent a couple of years in Montreal area and uh, before he went to Europe. uh, A number of Confederate generals uh, hid out in Niagara-on-the-Lake, just across the border. So, I mean, all that stuff was absolutely intriguing to me to find that. And I had to dig to find a bunch of that stuff. And I was surprised, quite frankly, there haven't been other books that have addressed the very interesting role that Canada played. Yeah, I'll tell you, the thing about this book is, I, as everybody who listens to the show knows, I'm very proud of my hometown. I'm very proud of being a border baby, being from Buffalo, living on the Canadian border. I praise Canada, I praise Buffalo up and down all the time. And I've spent a lot of time in a lot of the cities in this book. The one first fact I want to get to in the book specifically 
I'd like you to expand a little bit on more for me as a nerd and to, you know, wet people's whistle for the book is about your hometown of London. And there's this great, um, I'll hold up the book so you can see it, even though it's a audio only podcast of the train station. Yes. And you discovered and put out there about how London was a big supply company to both sides yeah, uh, during the Civil War. It, it's really interesting because during the Crimean War, the economy of this area, London is in the center of Western Ontario, and it's a, a geographical center, but also a manufacturing and agricultural and agricultural processing center. And uh, during the Crimean War, we profited quite nicely by selling supplies, wheat and that sort of thing to, to, to England because they were at war and uh, we helped them along. Well, as soon as the Crimean War ended, there was a bit of a, 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 a depression in London. The number of people by 1857, 1858, people were moving out. Things, uh, the good days looked like they were gone. And then all along, all of a sudden, along comes the Civil War. Well, uh, we're only uh, from Michigan. We're about 100, uh, uh, 60 miles, um, 100 kilometers. And from Buffalo, as you know, 150 miles, more or less, 200 kilometers. Uh, so we're fairly close to the border here, but we're also far enough away that we can uh, sort of do our own things. Well, uh the merchants of uh, because there's so many there were a lot of people raising horses and crops and that sort of thing uh, the buyers for both the confederacy and for the union found that london was a very good place to pick up horses uh, pick up uh, food supplies uh, 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 you know uh, it manufactured items that sort of thing the things they needed to wage war and also to feed the populations um, so we sold to both sides we profited very, very well throughout the Civil War. And in fact, after the Civil War ended, we were in another depression, the same kind that we had after the Crimean War. Um, so we we basically had two in, in London. There were two major hotels. One was sort of the headquarters of the Confederacy and the other one was sort of the headquarters of the Union. And both of them had lots of stables for horses and, and that sort of thing, because horses were how uh, armies got around. Um, and uh, it was a little harder for the Confederates uh, to ship through. They had to put them on boats and pretend the ships, the horses and supplies were going to England, uh, and then they'd get out into the ocean and do a hard right and head south and try to beat the Union blockades. But um, it was a very interesting time, and there was there were families living, uh, Confederate families living in uh, one of the hotels here, and uh, they were being supplied Southern cooking once or twice a week by this woman that was interviewed by a reporter way back when. Uh, we, we just had a uh, war was very good business for London, to be honest. And uh, uh, we uh, we had people that were that were uh, decided from here to go south and enlist. I mean, uh, there was something like. Uh, I think it was, I, I gave you a wrong number. I think there was 40,000 Americans that came to Canada and 20,000, and these are conservative numbers, 20,000 uh, Canadians went south and enlisted on both sides during the Civil War. Uh, but in fact, London, where I'm from here, was very central and benefited handsomely from the fact that you guys were all fighting each other down there. Yeah, and it's, it's, I don't even want to call London a war profiteering town, even though it essentially was. Yeah. But they weren't really playing sides so much as they were just playing commerce. <laughs> exactly. 
I mean, the the the, the almighty dollar uh, back then it was. Uh, I think they had just converted from pounds. Uh, the almighty dollar was, um, you know, it, it it led a lot of people to do a lot of things. Uh, uh, look at the look at the look at the bounty hunters and stuff that came up in the hopes of making money by returning some of the slaves uh, back to the states and and other people. Yeah, and it's also not surprising that you've got Union and Confederate officers up there doing the business. They're going to try to indoctrinate and enlist people there to come fight on their side. That's only natural. Oh yeah. Now there was. But the city uh, itself did it. Do you think the city itself picked a side, or were they just like, "Hey, we're just you know selling to the highest bidder"? Well, there was a significant amount of sympathy for the southern side. I have to be honest. Britain uh, was addicted to King Cotton, and we were a British colony until 1867. Um, we felt that the the South. I'm just talking about what people felt at the time. I wasn't around, obviously, but they seemed to think that the South had its hands full uh, dealing with an aggressive uh, a northern uh, army. Uh, and we were concerned, especially as the war went on and it was apparent that the South was losing it and was going to lose, ultimately lose the battle. We were concerned in Canada that the Union, a successful Union army uh, would turn its guns northward and complete the annexation of Canada it attempted unsuccessfully in the War of 1812-1814. So we had a lot of concern about the Union, uh, even though most people, uh, when they went south to enlist, they enlisted on the Union side. And it, it was, uh, there were a few people that went and, and enlisted uh, on the Confederate side, but um, it, it was a, it was a, I would, I would give my eye teeth to be wandering around the streets of London, Ontario, London, Canada West at the time, uh, in the 1860s during the Civil War and just listening in uh, on what was going on and observing what was going on as a reporter. And unfortunately, unfortunately, our newspapers were fairly new at the time and the coverage wasn't as as as, as much as I would hope as a newspaper guy. Um, however, there was it was funny because the. Um, the guys who were the Confederate, the guy, the two men leading the Confederate operations in Toronto and and, uh, and uh, Montreal, they complained bitterly that no one, they couldn't keep any secrets. That basically everybody around them was a spy or somebody was turning to somebody to tell them something, and all these plots managed to founder because of loose lips sinking ships. Yeah, I'm reading the book and I'm reading about all the spies in London. From both sides. And all I could think of was those old Mad Magazine spy versus spy comics. That no matter where you turned, one of them was going to be there. So you oh, never yeah. knew who you were talking to. Yeah, you had to be very, very careful. And there's an anecdote in that, uh, in the book, I think you may have read. Uh, it seems to have s uh, some truth to it. I can't vouch for it 100%, and I point out that I can't in the book. But uh, a fairly well-respected Londoner was interviewed by... A journalist who was himself was quite well respected, and he talked about during the Civil War, a uh, couple of uh, very attractive young women, well-dressed young women, came into his store, and uh, they were looking for some sort of window covering type treatment for some reason, and uh, he could tell uh, he could tell that they weren't they weren't local people. And they, they, they were interested in a particular style of window covering or whatever it was, uh, that he said, Oh, you people have your Yankee taste. You're, you know, you, 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 that's, that's just Yankee taste, you know? And one of the women pulled herself up and said, Sir, 
We are not Yankees. We are the daughters of Colonel Beauregard of the Confederacy. And there was there was some very a number of reports that, in fact, Beauregard had put a couple of members of his family at the Tecumseh House Hotel during the war. Now, um, I read two or three books about Beauregard and I cannot find any mention to his about his daughters. Uh, they did did live in a variety of places throughout the Civil War, but I could not find anything definitively that said that they were in London. But. Uh, but buttressing all that was another reporter spoke to uh, a, a woman who came from Kentucky, a black woman from Kentucky. And she talked about uh, how during the Civil War, once or twice a week, she made money by delivering Southern cooking, Southern cooked food to families that were from the South that were living in the Tecumseh House Hotel. So whether it was Beauregard's family or some other Southern families, the Tecumseh House Hotel was the sort of the headquarters in our city for the Confederacy. And it was a big, nice and fine hotel. Um, we didn't quite get as bad as the uh, I think it was the St. Lawrence Hotel in uh, in Montreal that the uh, Confederacy was using as a base of operations. They they pandered so much to the Southerners that they served mint juleps in the bar. <laughs> that that's not a canadian drink <laughs> no i would i would say that's not your not your typical canadian fair now lauren in case you're wondering being in wales that's um that's a kentucky drink that's a southern kentucky oh, beverage oh, no i know that it's not a canadian drink because in wales <clears throat> we're very lucky to have a tim hortons and we're all led to believe that canadians drink double doubles <laughs> Timmy's, yeah, I'm an, I'm addicted to Timmy's. I'm, I'm sorry. a Timmy's addict too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, this is something that I found fascinating about this book. Unlike most modern contemporary history books, you don't pull any punches about the flaws of your country, not only at the time but at present. That Yes, Canada has a worldwide reputation of being this kumbaya, holding hands, everybody loves everybody society. But there were hate groups and organizations in Canada at the time that rivaled the Ku Klux Klan and, and, and outpowered them in certain ways. But that leads me to say you had so many escaped slaves had already gone up to Canada through the Underground Railroad and had assimilated into the into the towns, especially in towns like London. Then you had these plantation owners with their money, so they were living better. Southern soldiers and Southern officers that escaped to Canada and Klansmen and racists. And they had to assimilate into those same towns. How did that coexistence work or did it create strife or did they become coexistent to escape well uh the uh the the largest concentration of of black americans that came to canada uh, came to london and west down toward windsor in places like a place called chatham there were a number of uh of, of, of black settlements down there but they also integrated into the communities the location there weren't a lot of uh, okay there were 
a number of former plantation owners that settled in London after the war. Not a lot. There was two two families, but there were a number of members in the families. And as you as you would have known, two of the principal members of those families were um, South Carolina legislators who voted in favor of secession in 1860, which was one of the triggers of the Civil War in the first instance, right? Uh, so these guys played a pretty pivotal role in, in what happened in their state. And then at the after the war, they were so concerned because at the time, uh, the white population was only 40% of the state. And they were worried that uh, the, the, the newly empowered uh, black population would be, you know, uh, giving a little payback. And they decided to, to, to flee. So those people were in London. Uh, they, they were in no doubt in other communities. I have not found them in any sort of numbers in other communities up here. But the Confederate uh, generals and majors, uh, uh, military people, and the envoy to Great Britain, a guy named James Mason, they settled in Niagara-on-the-Lake. Niagara-on-the-Lake is right near the border, as you know. It's right on the border. And it didn't have, it didn't have a very large uh, black population. Uh, in fact, because of the predations of these bounty hunters, they, were, they, they discovered that they were too close to the border. To, to get protection from Canadian authorities, if they moved away, and they did move away, the, the black population of Niagara-on-the-Lake had declined by the time the war was over, and the Confederate generals set up shop and lived there for, and Ku Klux Klan, a leading member of the Ku Klux Klan set up shop there too. But by the time that those uh, Confederates settled in Niagara-on-the-Lake, the black population had largely moved farther inland, over to St. Catharines and over toward London. Yeah, and Lauren, and for the rest of our audience around the world, Niagara-on-the-Lake is literally right over the border. When he says right over the border, he means you cross the bridge into Canada, and within five minutes, you're at Niagara-on-the-Lake. It's yeah. less than five minutes from the U.S. border. It's that close. Yeah. It's a mile. I think the river, I think the, the Niagara River there is like a mile wide or something. And it's very interesting because there's a, a lovely anecdote in there. One of the Confederate generals that uh, set up shop in uh, Niagara on the lake was a guy named John Breckenridge. And he had been the, the last secretary of war for the Confederacy. He'd also been vice president of the United States from 1856 to 1860. Uh, he was uh, he was he he had to escape by way of Cuba or something, if I recall and he eventually made his way to niagara on the lake where other confederates already were located but he lived as close to the river as he could get it was on front street and he lived at two different properties on front street and it is said that uh he could hear the bugle call at fort niagara which was on the american side of the river in the morning waking up the soldiers and it's funny because when Jefferson Davis visited the old Confederate generals in Niagara on the lake. He, he sailed from uh, Montreal to Toronto. Toronto, given a hero's welcome, comes to Niagara on the lake, gets a hero's welcome, uh, m spends several days with his old Confederate generals telling real war stories. Talking war stories. Anyway, uh, he says he looks over across the river at Fort Niagara. And I think it was Davis or Breckenridge, I can't remember which of them, said that's, that's the flag, the, the Union, the um, uh, Stars and Stripes is waving in the breeze. And the, the one of them turns to the other and says, that's the griddle we were fried upon, you know, it's that close 
to the American side. Uh, so it was like almost thumbing Breck for Breckenridge and the other generals. It was almost like thumbing their nose at the American authorities who were so close. But had they had these people gone back, it was arguable they might have been uh, tried for treason or sedition or something and could have been executed. And you may recall that late in the war, be shortly before he died, Lincoln was turning his mind toward the issue about what to do about because it was apparent by then this, the South was losing, what to do with the leaders of the Confederacy. And it was decided, he just said, just let them run. Let them run. We don't have to worry about it. Let them run. Well, run they did. And sometimes they ran farther than others. And sometimes they ran just across the border and settled in Niagara-on-the-Lake. Which is a beautiful area. I got to say, I like Niagara-on-the-Lake a lot. It's it's very nice, very nice. I'm having I'm having a, a sort of a secondary book launch at Niagara on the Lake, and uh, there's a wonderful historian there I've dealt with. He knows about these people and, and the, the 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 Confederate generals and the like that were living there. But I'm I'm wondering how many of the general public that are going to come to the event would be uh, would already know that, or I may like in London with our other people. How many people are going to have their eyes opened from my little book? Yeah, and uh, you better email me the uh, the date and time of that little book launch because <laughs> I'm only five minutes away, so I might have to get there to get this signed. Because <laughs> well, um, it's at a private house. Um, a friend oh, of mine, a former a former television reporter friend of mine, who settled in Niagara in the Lake about three years ago. And we're because it's a fairly small house. It can well, you know, the houses in Niagara on the Lake. None of them are very, very large, but not many anyway. We're we're having to limit it to about twenty people. And we, I'm not. I'll find a way. I'll find a way. I can meet you halfway across the Peace Bridge if necessary. <laughs> I got so, a better idea. I got a that? better idea. What's that? After it's done, you cross that bridge. And I take you to Duff's for the best wings in the world. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Because you have mentioned it this episode. Well, I was getting I'll really see. worried about you. Yeah, you have <laughs> mentioned it this episode. I know when we first, <laughs> when we first spoke to set up this interview, Brian told me he'd been to Anchor Bar. And I'm like, no, 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 no. You got to go to Duff's. I like I I got to be honest I'm a big fan of Buffalo I've spent my time there I've gone to to see the 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 ball team uh, I've been to the Buffalo Museum I've been past the old uh, 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 Pierce Arrow plant uh, uh, I've uh, I, I think it, we've played my daughters played ball in Wheatfield and up over at Aunt Rosie's over by Hamburg and uh, we've uh, we I've had some really good experiences in Buffalo I quite like it I think we should just annex you and put the put an end to it you know that's yeah. I, 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 I think I, I think Brian would be willing for that. Which which Brian? Yeah. This Brian, me, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's very Brian. willing for that. <laughs> well, yeah. it's funny. I always tell people um, from around the world that I talk to, or even people across the country, when they say, "Oh, Buffalo, New York," is that near New York City? And I always tell them, "No, Buffalo is more a suburb of Toronto." Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And they laugh, but I when Toronto petitioned to get the Olympics, and they have to put out a list of all the cities where events will be held because it's so big. Buffalo is on their list. Oh, nice, nice. So makes that, makes if a lot. Toronto sense. has the Olympics. There will be events in Buffalo. So technically, Buffalo is a suburb of Toronto. 
Well, yeah, but I mean, ah, we're, we're good, good neighbors, uh, and uh, we've got along forever. Except, uh, you know, you guys were a little aggressive about eighteen twelve, eighteen fourteen. But other than that, other than that, we've been getting along pretty well. It was just the Irish, and just because <laughs> I'm Irish doesn't mean I was one of them. Yeah. <laughs> I'm actually considering writing a book about that invasion. Oh, really? Yeah, I've been doing a lot of research on it lately, and I think that that's a story a lot of people don't know when the Irish invaded Canada through Buffalo. So. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. And they was that the Battle of Ridgeway? Yeah, and the, and the Irish Fenians um, just, you know, were yeah. a little cuckoo for the, Cocoa Puffs. The Fenians, yeah, you guys want, yeah, the, the Irish were making trouble. And then we had a bunch of... Uh, the British were, were su- supplemented in their troops by, I think they were students from the University of Toronto that came down to say, well, we'll have to fight these Irish guys down there. And, yeah. uh, you know, you, you guys made a nice intrusion into our territory, but thank, thankfully uh, you decided to uh, skedaddle. <laughs> well, I'm glad we lost that one because Canada gave us much better senses of humor with their comedy. Um, some of the greatest Canadians ever were comedians. Uh, you know, Canada also gave us, you know, the NHL. Well, we're going to have to talk about that at the end of this show. I don't want to get the fight started right now. Okay. Because we will go to blows. I'm saving that till the end. Oh, oh, it's a hockey one, Lauren. It's not even baseball. It's worse. When a Canadian and American (laughs) argue hockey, it gets worse. I, I've been, I've also attended a couple of uh, Sabres games too. Now that I think about it. Well, there you go. See, and you're a big Buffalo Sabres fan, right? Go Sabres! Uh, 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 I'll just edit uh, that yes in. I, I grew up. I grew up in the Toronto area, and um, yeah. I, I can't quite go there, Brian. No, you. I would like can't. take a Leafs fan out of uh, out of the Leafs. <laughs> My father grew up a Leafs fan. Oh, excellent. Well, I, I remember, uh, I think I'm a little older than you, but I remember as a 17-year-old boy, so excited I had a scrapbook when the Leafs won the Stanley Cup in 1967. And when did they win it again after that? Uh, they haven't. And there exactly. Is, and the Can- Montreal Canadiens fans are absolute jackasses reminding us about that. I just love the fact that you didn't say, and when did Buffalo win their last Stanley Cup? <laughs> No, you guys are relative newcomers. We've been around since, good God, St. Pat's 1915 or something. Yeah, we've only been around since 1970. Yeah, well, you're kids. You're just kids. Teenagers. Yeah, yeah we're, yeah. we're going we're gonna to get there. We might, we might win it this year. Yeah, okay. Yeah, okay, it. excellent. Well, well uh, the book. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. What book? Oh, yeah, that book. Because this is a story that I, this chapter, chapter 12, after I read it, I gave it to my girlfriend. I said, oh, my God, you've got to read this chapter. And then give it back to me, and I reread it. Because the whole story of Matthew Manville, the 21-year-old soldier, how they escaped from prison and went into London. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He was with the, uh, what was the? Uh, bu- oh, my God. Uh, Morgan's, uh, Morgan's Raiders, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had we had all sorts of people get here by various means, and for the motives that I found fascinating, 
the way people uh, uh, traveled, and some people would walk hundreds of miles, but uh, what motives, motivations, what, why did they decide to, 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 to flee? Why were things so bad? They had to try to cross an international border. And I, I, especially, the, um, especially the, 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 the black folks that were escaping slavery on the Underground Railroad, they had to travel at night. They had to travel great long distances. And, you know, just east of you, Rochester was a great hub uh, with Frederick Douglass was a great hub on the uh, Underground Railroad. And uh, um, it, 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 I just it blows my mind to think about the, the privations, the difficulties. And they, they talked about following the Northern Star and they were going to find Canaan. And uh, uh, a lot of them, uh, a lot of them were disappointed that things weren't better for them, but it was overall still better than what they left behind. Well, yeah, and, and I don't think what a lot of people would, I don't think what a lot of, what a great way to structure a sentence, huh? <laughs> That's why we're writers, not talkers. But um, That's right. That's right. <laughs> what a lot of people don't realize is when, when the world thinks of Buffalo, New York now, they think of, a blizzard they think of a, a small little town with a if they think about ontario it's always toronto they think about they don't think about hamilton london st Catharines, niagara on the lake buffalo rochester in the 1860s were very wealthy places there was a lot of money and a lot of industries um the the, the northest part of Buffalo before you get to Canada, North Conawanda, New York, at the time was the lumber capital of North America. Huge money. Buffalo was the second largest city in the state, of which at the time was the largest state. Buffalo was immensely rich. Right over the border into Canada, was a fair, all the way up into Toronto and beyond, was very wealthy at the time. So, I think a lot of people, when they say, why are they going to these little out-of-the-way places to escape? These were not out-of-the-way places at the time. These were very well-known cities, very rich cities, very prosperous cities. And 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 uh, uh, just for the benefit of, of, uh, of uh, Lauren and others, uh, where I am located in London is exactly halfway between Buffalo and Detroit. But... I'm on the Canadian side of Lake Erie, okay? So, um, and a lot of people from Buffalo or New York State that are heading into the Midwest or the West, they'll come through southern Ontario. They'll pass right by London because there's a major highway that takes you from east to west. People from Michigan or the Midwest that are going down to New York City or wherever else, they'll come along here too. So, it's a long, it has a long tradition of being a well-traveled route, aside from having some reasonably prosperous places along the way. Uh, so, it's just a, a, a it, it's been a, a, a well-traveled route for an awful long time, and trains, uh, there, there's an American-owned train uh, 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 company that, that uh, what's it called, the uh, Oh, I can't remember the name of it, but it's goes from Detroit to uh, goes to Detroit to Bo to Buffalo right through. It's called Canada Southern, but it's owned by an American company, and it's been around for a long, long, long time, probably from since the Civil War time. So there have been transportation routes that 
people would have heard about places up here because of we were on we were not off the beaten path despite the fact we are across the border that's the point i'm trying to make and a lot of natural resources like you said we had the lakes all the great lakes right there the niagara river you had all the transportation all the ports the train stations in the uh, of the united states going all the way straight through to canada mm. i mean it, it this was this was not um, out of the way. <laughs> this was very much in the way. Yes. So yeah. when when this 21-year-old officer escapes prison with his a bunch of people, they hightailed it right into Canada. Yeah, yeah. He was he was held at Johnson's Island, correct? If correct. I recall. You read it more correct. recently than me. And uh, yeah, and they came across the ice, as I recall, as well. Yeah. I mean, that's... Uh, you know, that's a pretty tough thing. I mean, yes, Lake Erie is fairly shallow and it tends to freeze uh, a bit more extensively than some of the other Great Lakes. But still, that's a long haul from the American side of Lake Erie across to the Canadian side. Uh, and with ice and the winds and everything, I just spent three days down on uh, Pelee Island, which is uh, uh, out in the middle of Lake Erie, very, very close to uh, the, the Bass Islands and Sandusky, Ohio and Port Clinton. And uh, yeah, it the wind gets going pretty pretty good there. So uh, yeah, that would be a, a pretty harrowing trek in the dead of winter across the ice. And it also shows you that they knew exactly where they were going because you're not going to risk trekking across the ice when it's that cold and hazardous unless you know where that light at the end of the tunnel is. Yeah. They knew how far it was. They knew where they were going and they knew why they were going there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, after the war ended, because we're getting close to running out of time. Well, first off, I'm going to ask, because we're going to cut tonight's episode short, because I know you have things to do, can we do another episode? Because I'd like to talk about some of your other books, too. But I'd love to have you back on any time oh, to talk more uh, about this. Brian, any time. You've treated me like a, like a prince here. I, uh, how could I refuse? Well, because it, it's the best show in the world. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm, I'm, I'm learning that. <laughs> <laughs> my question is after the war ended canadian government knows what they have on their hands a how did they react did they did they kind of like brush it under the rug and just say okay you're canadians now shut up about the past or did they embrace southern heritage and culture oh my um i think i think through before the war during the war and after the war, tolerance was the key word. We were willing to accept people and we were tolerant of them. Uh, uh, people from different backgrounds, from different countries, from different cultures, that sort of thing. Um, I think it was a, 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 a tolerance that uh, pervaded, uh, and I, I attribute this to the British, uh, you know, uh, 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 Lauren, your people were, you know, they were our people. Um, and I think there was a, a general uh, acceptance of differences uh, for the for the most part. But I don't think there was an active movement to sweep anything under the rug, just like um, I don't think there was any, you know, people didn't start, you know, uh, drinking mint juleps in sympathy for the southern side. Um <laughs> So I, I'm, I got to be honest, I have to be honest, um, I, I think they just sort of tried to get back to the way things were or just, you know, move on. Um, 
and I think there was some a little bit of let's uh, well the immediate concern was the economy because the end of the war was bad for business all that uh, all that was go- that, that was going on so there was a little bit of a, an economic setback for for Canada after the civil war but um, I don't know I, I've never found any sort of evidence that we um, gloated about the Union victory or had sympathy for the southern side nothing nothing um, nothing that I found that sort of indicated that we had uh, a changed uh, changed much in terms of our outlook or our uh, approach to things. In the last part of the book that I want to touch on, um, just to again wet people's whistle, is really a dark subject, um, a very hard to read subject that you 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 broached, and it was very brave too. And I really admired the bravery it took to write about it was why the Klan was not able to take hold in Southern Ontario. <laughs> and I think that would shock a lot of people. Uh, that, well, yeah. yeah. Yeah, please well, explain. <laughs> okay. Um, yes, uh, the Ku Klux Klan, the, 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 the original organization was called the Ku Klux, and it was established immediately after the Civil War by uh, angry white people that wanted to put black people back in their place. And they used threats and intimidation. They, the, the big thing was they wanted them not to vote, uh, but they would use lynchings and terrorism and burn down barns and stuff uh, and all that sort of thing. Well, the federal government finally moved in and passed the Ku Klux Act, which uh, which sort of drove it underground and the fugitives that were charged under that some had some jail time and stuff and other the more prominent ones fled to to Canada a few of them anyway Uh, but so the Ku Klux went sort of underground it still was there in 1915 a movie called Birth of a Nation came out and it was a it was a way ahead of its time. It was still a silent movie, but it was way ahead of its time. Cinema, cinematographic, cinematograph, uh, from a movie making standpoint, <laughs> and and uh, and uh, but it was but it was te- yeah, it was terribly racist and uh, got a lot of people upset. And what it did is it did in fact spark the establishment of the modern Ku Klux Klan when it showed in Atlanta, Georgia. And the Ku Klux Klan, as it was now called, started to grow like Topsy uh, in the post uh, post World War One era, and uh, throughout the states. And by the twenties, it was migrating into Canada, and they were trying to get a foothold here in Canada. Uh, uh, but they ran into some competition they hadn't expected. the The Orange Lodge uh, was very big uh, in uh, Ontario and in Canada, but in Ontario especially. The Orange Lodge is an organization of uh, Irish Protestants that uh, dislike Irish Catholics, that dislike uh, immigrants, that dislike uh, foreigners. That um, is a is a fraternal organization that is bigoted, quite frankly. And it already had significant hold over Ontario politics and Ontario culture. The Ontario government, for instance, uh, you had to basically be an Orangeman or be recommended by an Orangeman in order to get a job in the Ontario government. Over the course of 100 years, there was only one or two mayors of Toronto that weren't Orangemen. The At the federal level, four of our prime ministers were prominent in the loyal Orange order. Um, and it was a... Um, 
they p- passed themselves off as a benevolent organization, but they they were really uh, uh, they really were spite filled and and bigoted. And uh, at, at any rate, the orange the Ku Klux Klan tried to they had cross burnings and they had rallies and they I've got a photograph somewhere of the uh, the Ku Klux Klan gathering in downtown Toronto outside City Hall in the middle of the night uh, uh, with with their white hoods on and the uniforms and they're all saluting and they laid some wreaths at the cenotaph outside toronto city hall and that was in 1926 there were two separate ku klux klan organizations trying to drum up interest in ontario well they couldn't get any members because anyway if you were already bigoted and didn't like catholics or blacks or whatever uh you were likely a member of the orange lodge so Bottom line, by the as the depression wore on, the Ku Klux eventually pulled out uh, completely, went back to the states, and you know they're still existent down there. They're sort of David Duke is still around, and they haven't been in the news much recently, but it still exists down there. But I thought at first you say, well, oh, we were better than that. We didn't have the Ku we we the Ku Klux Klan couldn't get any foothold in Ontario. Well, the thing was, the reality is uh, there were bigots already. Uh, uh, People who were bigoted were already members yeah. of an organization. Yeah, the truth of the matter is your bigots had more political power than our bigots at the time, so you won. Yeah, the home, homegrown bigots, I guess, always have a home field advantage, right? Exactly. Now, Lauren, i got to bring you in before uh, I go to the rapid-fire questions, because you loved the book, too. I know we were talking about it. Do you have any questions? Do you want anything? Um, so, um, I, one of my questions has already been answered. What... What was the reception for the for the slaves that were that ended up in Canada? What was the direct and immediate reception to them by the Canadians? Were they supported? Were they helped? What type of you know, were they given shelter? Given any aid? Uh, yeah, at the borders, for instance, at Fort Erie, there was a real operation there, a thing called Bertie Hall, which would give them a way station to sort of get settled uh, and and help them find jobs and that sort of thing. But elsewhere, uh, there was some resentment in places that, uh, for instance, we had a member of parliament down in the Chatham area. He was actually a member of parliament and he told people, we don't want black people here. They'll just lower the property values, you know. And he was a racist and a bigot, and uh, he caused all sorts of trouble. Uh, the Reverend King, who was behind, he was a Presbyterian um, minister from uh, from uh, England, or I think it was Presbyterian. He was he was Scottish, and uh, he'd been in uh, uh, New Orleans, and his wife had died, and he inherited some slaves. He wasn't happy about that. Comes to Canada. And establishes the Buxton settlement down near Chatham toward the Windsor area. And uh, he was he talked and I quoted it in the book. He was threatened when people heard that he was bringing black people up into the the Chatham area. He was said basically told to watch your back. Um, We know in the Chatham area as well that there was a significant uh, number of, of black people living there. And there was uh, there was some discrimination going on. There was some gerrymandering of school boundaries in order to exclude black people. And uh, uh, so it was it was a mixed bag. Um, uh, it was a mixed bag of their uh, uh, as far as their reception goes. I I I I think it was uh, depending on where you happen to be and if you were amongst a large number of people, it was a bit more. It may have been more difficult. Thank you. Yeah, I, we cannot thank you enough for coming on. And again, folks, you got to get this book. 
From Underground Railroad to Rebel Refuge, Canada and the Civil War by Brian Martin from ECW Press. Unbelievable book. But we got to go to the rapid fire questions because we only got a few minutes left. Now, you already answered the one that you will come back on. Where we'll talk oh, sure. about well, we'll talk about your books and your work and serious stuff. But this is the rapid fire, non-related to anything. There are no wrong answers unless you get the answer wrong, in which I tell you you're wrong. Okay. Okay. What on what topic about the book? Anything, anything that enters my head. Oh my god! Like question number one: Pluto, is it a planet or not? Pluto? Yeah. Uh, nearly perpendicular. No, uh, it it was demoted. Ah, oh, bad answer. Okay, two. No, that's the right answer. <laughs> it, was, but it was. Invented demoted. hockey? Yes or no? Oh. Oh, oh, that's that's arguable. Uh, Nova Scotia claims it. Kingston, Ontario claims it. But I I think like other games, it evolved like baseball. It evolved from other games. I, I don't believe Canada invented. And it's not our national sport. Lacrosse is. That's true. Lacrosse is your national sport. And Michigan invented hockey. Just want to say right there. The U.S. took the U.S. got hockey. That's the right answer. Okay, okay, okay. Where in Michigan? Uh, Michigan, the very north of Michigan, which was not part of Canada at the time, where the coal miners were, when it would freeze over, they would go on the ice and bat around pieces of the coal, and that became hockey. Well, you know, I I didn't know that. So are you talking about the Upper Peninsula way up yeah, there? Yeah, I was, I was making the fist like people could see it because Michigan yeah. shaped like a fist. Yeah, the yeah. Upper Peninsula. Okay, gotcha. Uh, or as we, those of us that live not far from Detroit say, the UP. Okay, we'll stick with hockey for now. <laughs> Gretzky or Lemieux? Gretzky or Lemieux? Yeah. <sighs> oh. oh, Gretzky. Ah, good answer. <laughs> Gordy Howe or Bobby Orr? Oh, another tough one. Oh. <laughs> Gordy has no idea what we're talking about. Gordy Howe. Gordy Howe. Just because Canada is part of the Commonwealth, I just think that you should stop picking on the Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> hey, listen, I could start picking on the English people because my view about soccer, which we call soccer, you call football. We don't call it football, but I call it a waste of grass. But let's not go there. Oh, oh no, I, I agree. Uh, no, I agree. <laughs> okay, this is going to be the last comparison I, I, between I, hockey way, players. I, I've got some. I've got some relatives in Staffordshire that I really get ballistic when I tell them it's a waste of grass. <laughs> Sorry, one last it, one. It is one last hockey comparison. This is tough. Ila Fleur, Jobert Perrault. Oh, the, I got to go with the flower. I'm sorry. Le so with Jobert, I had to yep. tell you a quick little Jobert story. Okay. Now, when he comes back to Buffalo to do, you know, events and stuff, because he played his whole career in Buffalo. Lauren, in case you're wondering, Gilbert Perot was one of the uh, was voted one of the 50 greatest players of all time. Played his entire career. He was Buffalo Sabres' very first draft pick, their very first year, and he played his entire career for the Buffalo Sabres. But Canadian legend and just one of the greatest hockey players of all time. So whenever he comes back to Buffalo for events, he's recognized everywhere. I mean, he's an icon. And I'm out at a bar, 
one night, and Larry Playfair and Jill Perot were there. And there had been some drinks flowing, and we were all goofing around with each other. So the next thing I know, I'm at the table with Jill Bear. Me and him are just drinking back and forth all night. And these people kept coming up going, hey, you're the greatest of all time. Well, or Gretzky or Lemieux, who was the best? And everybody who asked him, he'd go, Guy Lefleur. <laughs> That's all he would answer. And then they'd walk away. He'd look at me and go, Guy was better than all of them. <laughs> now, we got five minutes to go. I got to ask, you've written some amazing books about baseball. As a Canadian, what drew you to baseball? I mean, obviously the Blue Jays were there nearby. But a little bit later on, baseball is the American pastime. What about America's game drew this good Canadian boy in? Well, the fact it was invented in Canada. I knew you were going to say that. Well, not quite. It, it, it actually came down from ancient games of ball and bat were played in Egypt. And its closest relative is rounders, a game which I believe Lauren may be familiar with. Lauren uh, always calls baseball fancy rounders. That's what it is. I've, I've seen some video of a number of games that, that claim to be related to baseball. And when I saw some young women playing a game of rounders, I said, that's it. That's it. Um, I live in London, Ontario, which is the home of the world's oldest baseball diamond. It was built in 1877 for our London Tecumseh baseball team, which won the International Association pennant in its very first year. And in that very first year, it was the second year for the National League. And the International Association was a rival major league that has been de deprived of that major league status by professional baseball ever since. So the bona fides I have are the fact I am living in the home of the world's oldest baseball park. I've written a book about our Tecumsehs that I say was Canada's first major league champions, not the Blue Jays of 1992-93. Uh, and also the story about baseball being invented in Cooperstown, New York, it, which we all know is bogus by now. I hope even people hey, in Buffalo... Say it, say it, it's bullshit. Okay, it's bullshit. Anyway, I believe, and I wrote a book called Baseball's Creation Myth that suggests that that game, the story about that game, had its roots in a game that was played in Beachville, Ontario in 1838. Beachville is near London here, and that the two tellers of those stories met in Denver drank in Denver, were professional class people in Denver, attended baseball games in Denver, and when the Canadian guy who told in, in uh, Sporting Life magazine in 1886, when he died, when he talked about that game in Beachville, when he died, then Abner Graves told the story about it being invented in Cooperstown. He basically changed the venue. All right, you know, what I got to do is just to drive Lauren absolutely bonkers, I have got to book you on an episode with the great Ed Acorn. And he is an expert on 19th century baseball as well. He wrote the amazing books, The Summer of Beer and Whiskey and 59 and 84 about Hoss Radburn. Yep. And I would just, the whole show would just be me sitting back and letting the two of you talk 19th century baseball. Oh, Lauren, Lauren, can you imagine Brian just sitting back and listening? <laughs> no, I can't. Um, no, he doesn't. He doesn't sit back and listen. <laughs> well, okay, but carry on, Brian. But not yeah, we, we have hit that hour mark, and I know you got to go. 
but please promise me you'll come back on and we'll talk more. And I, I, I'm more than happy to, Brian. I've enjoyed. I love your enthusiasm, um, and I'm amazed that Lauren, <laughs> that Lauren puts up with you. <laughs> well, you know they're proper. They're 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 they're, they're subjects of of the of the of the royals. They're proper yeah. and prim and proper. They're reserved. You really said queen. <laughs> you really said queen. <laughs> <laughs> I did almost say queen. <laughs> queen Charles will be a great queen. Yeah, I'm sure. No, that actually happened on the news. Like a few days afterwards, somebody did say Queen Charles. Oh, no, really? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, Lauren and Brian, I thoroughly enjoyed chatting with you folks. And if you want to talk baseball or you want to have a whenever, I, I, this has been a lot of fun. Unfortunately, I have a commitment I have to attend to. Uh, and I'm sorry that we're a little shorter than normal. And I apologize up front. But if you want to talk again, I'm I'm your guy. Uh, anytime you are welcome on this show. So from the amazing Brian Martin in London, Ontario, and Brian in Buffalo, New York, and with me as always. Lauren from South Wales. Good night. Good night. Maybe he'd be with the Ewoks and so some things. Yes, that's my theory.